Pickaxe. It's time to enter a world of stories and adventure in High Rollers, a Dungeons & Dragons podcast set in the vibrant world of Althea, the Dragon Empire. I'm Kim, one of five friends being led through a journey of magic, mystery and mayhem by Dungeon Master Mark Humes. Prepare yourself for epic encounters and unbelievable stories where heroes uncover sinister plots, explore a diverse world and crack a few bad jokes along the way. If you love the feeling of a fun home game but with the quality of a studio show, then why not give High Rollers a try? Episodes go live in two parts twice a week in one-hour chunks, so it's easy to keep up. So, what are you waiting for? Join our campaign, become a High Roller, and we'll see you in Althea, the Dragon Empire. If you're using your own money to gamble because you're a gambling addict, that's one thing. Like, it's not great, it's pretty bad. But you're an adult making your own decisions with your own money. It gets muddy when you are being paid to promote that casino, and the kids that are watching have the ability to sign up. They don't have verification to put money in, but they do have verification to take money out. So if they find out you're <laughs> under 21, you won't get your money. Or you're under whatever gambling oh, age. Wow. It's probably That's, 21 for them. You won't get your money. They know what they're doing. There are a lot of like people who could be budding into school shooters. right? So the, the kid who is 18 got there somehow, whether it's mental illness whether it's indoctrination, whether it's like being a part of an echo chamber, it's probably a combination of all of the above. Most of the time, it's like good humans. I've worked with a couple people who are actually bad humans. They'll say like, how do I be less of a bad human? Like, I wanna be a better human. I would like to understand how they started to believe the things that they believe. You know, what were they trying to accomplish? Like, like I'd like to understand not just the fruit that comes off of the tree, but where did the leaves come from? How did the tree grow? What was the sapling and what was the seed? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. What did you say? I was just saying it's it's been a tragedy. No, I was just agreeing. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate times. Yeah, I mean, what do you? Why do you think this is happening? Like more and more and more. Oh, I have no idea. I couldn't even pretend to come up with a valid reason. Um, hold on a second, Charlie. Sorry, I'm. My headphones seem to be crapping out on me. Uh, no worries. Yeah. So you were saying you you couldn't even begin to provide a reason. Nah, I have no idea. I think more and more people retreat into their own fucked up landscapes mainly just uh i think from online being terminally online and they just retreat into themselves and come up with some terrible terrible ideas um how do you think that happens when you say like retreat into their online spaces i think they just feel so alone and they'll read a bunch of shit and maybe a couple like-minded unfortunate souls and they start to provide a negative feedback loop and then they just keep staying in there and they just become very unpleasant any idea what so you know here at hg we try to help the internet with their mental health educating people hopefully guiding people sometimes offering things like coaching services um what what do you is there anything you think we can do like not not just us but also like streamers the internet gamers uh, 
I have no idea. Uh, I really couldn't tell you. I can't pretend to understand the mindset of a lot of these fucked up people. I, I don't know what makes them do the shit they do or feel the way they feel. I just think that there's a huge element at play where they see people that may or may not be in an just an awful spot like they are and then they start giving each other terrible terrible ideas and poisoning each other and then it's kind of like a situation where because they have so much access to so many people all the time they just become diseased from it what, what do you mean by that so much access to so many people all the time like you can always find someone who believes in whatever garbage you believe in there's always going to be groups for it, so you can always find an echo chamber to associate yourself with, and that just reinforces it. And how do you know, so, you, so when you're saying you, know, you can always find someone to believe in the garbage you believe in, how do you know what's garbage and what isn't? I guess you'd never really do, it, it, unless you know, you're out from the outside perspective. So something like the... JFK being revived and cruising through Dallas to announce his presidency to someone of I would say ordinary body and mind that sounds ridiculous but then you have so many people that believe it and have been camping outside of Dallas that that road that he was claiming to be or that 4chan claimed he'd be driving down for months oh they're still there I thought that they sort of figured out that he wasn't showing up Nope. There's still a couple people that show up every now and then, but they no longer do the big ceremonies. What ceremonies were they doing? They used to do candlelight vigils and wait for JFK to ride through. Fascinating. Do you know much amazing. about that? Yeah, it started as a 4chan joke to QAnon. They made a post as Q saying that they had uh, evidence to support that JFK Jr. had been revived and then they gave a date, I don't remember the date, it was, I think it was like November of 2021 or something, that he, he and Donald Trump would be cruising through some street in Dallas to announce their 2024 presidential run. And they sat out there and waited that entire day. It didn't happen. They came back the next day, still didn't happen, and continued that for about a month Wait, or so. They, they, they said he had been revived, like he was literally brought back from the dead? Uh, initially, they said that he was revived, but I think they tried to change it to be more believable. So they said that he never actually died and had just been in hiding. So they started using pictures of people's hands to prove that they were JFK Jr.'s hands. What? Mm -hmm. Used pictures of people's hands to prove that they were JFK's hands? Yeah, there's a... Here. How, what is Let that? Me... Here, I'll send you the picture uh, that they used for evidence. It was, where is it? I think it was a, pres a presidential photo of Trump when he was signing something. There was some guy in the background who had hands that they said were JFK Jr.'s hands. And they used that as evidence to support their claim that JFK Jr. is still alive. I want to see if I can find that photo. That's insane, dude. <laughs> it's it's wild. So what, what do you think is going on? And do you prefer like Moist or Critical or Charlie or... You can just call me Charlie. So Charlie, like, like what's go like? Why are all these echo chambers forming on the internet? Like, what do you think is going on, man? Access. You can, like I said, you can always find anyone who believes anything. So then, once you find that group, you just keep to yourselves in your own little bubble, and you just feed off each other's paranoia. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I I wonder about some of these things. So when we've done some some we've been, I guess in a sense like supporting budding incels in this community for a while, like in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, helping them hopefully get out of their echo chambers. So we've interviewed several incels on stream, um, sort of challenge some of their beliefs and ideas. It's really interesting. I I saw a recent study where uh, someone actually looked at characteristics that some that lead to attractiveness. And it turns out that like jawline or sorry, not attractiveness, but male characteristics that correlate with sexual activity and maybe even having kids and facial structure is actually like doesn't correlate at all so there's some of these beliefs right that like a jawline or or the chad jaw or whatever is like mm-hmm. important in terms of being able to mate and some of these other sort of pseudoscientific beliefs but really the only thing that seemed to strongly correlate was muscularity which is something that's controllable yeah, you all, that's I think that's like a positive thing to hear because you have control over your muscularity. Yep. You, you just need to commit to it. Something that you can never change, though, is height. And that's a tough one. Yeah. So I think height may have been a small correlation, but wasn't mm-hmm. very big. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, do think that height is a, uh, is basically a nail in the coffin. If you're below a certain height that you know, you're not going to be able to have a successful romantic relationship. But it doesn't seem like the research really supports that conclusion. No, but that's always going to be like their smoking gun. Uh, a lot. I know a lot of the incels, because we used to do that on the podcast. Sometimes one of our co-hosts would talk to them directly. They usually always bring up height. So it seems like a lot of the incels are on the shorter side of things. Oh, well, can you, can you tell there. me what you mean by that? It's something we talked about a lot on the podcast. Yeah, so I have a podcast with four buddies of mine, and one of them's like a an incel epidemiologist. He's been on the forefront of plotting the incel course since about 2016. Interesting. Over the yeah, over the course of the years, he's like talked to them, interviewed them, and everything. So I've learned a lot about them from that guy. His name's Kaya. And what is he? What has he concluded? That a lot of them are just too far gone. Uh, no matter what he said or what he's tried to say, they are always somehow coming up with excuses for why it's beyond salvation and that they're just going to be forever alone, loser, loners, and they will always hate women. At least some of them. But to be fair, Kaya's only talked to like the most extreme of incels. Yeah, I was going to say, I, that hasn't really been my experience in terms of the incels we've worked with. I think a lot of them are very decent, good human beings and also yeah. seem to be more attractive than they give themselves credit for. But um, yeah, I mean, what do you, hmm. anything in particular you want to talk about today? No, I'm good for whatever you want, man. I'm an open book, ready to discuss whatever. And I can't find this picture of the hands anymore because YouTube <laughs> cracked down on conspiracies so hard. Uh, yeah, so Charlie, I one of the things that I really like respect about you is I just like to hear you talk about stuff. Like I, I think the, my favorite, I don't know if this is stuff that you stream at some point, but I, I'll, I'll watch your YouTube channel from time to time. And sometimes you'll just like talk about stuff. Like I still remember when you were talking about um, there was one video that you made talking about how gender reveal parties were stupid and that this is going to end badly. And then like a week or two later, like someone started a wildfire through a gender reveal of fireworks. 
And so there are a couple of things that you've just, you know, you've opined on. And so I was just really hoping to kind of hear anything that's been bouncing around in your head. If you've come to any conclusions recently, what you've kind of been keeping up with. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. There's a lot of, you know, talk about mass shootings. Like those are kind of the two things that were just top of mind for me today. But I also see that you still have a, a, a quite magnificent Pokemon collection. Yeah. Uh, so it seems like that was not a temporary thing the last time we talked. No, I actually finished the collection for Yu-Gi-Oh! mainly. Pokemon, I, I, I finished mainly what I wanted there, but Yu-Gi-Oh! was the big one for me, which I finished the collection. What finish the collection means that you you have all of the cards now? What is What exactly? The ones it? that I wanted, yeah. All the cards I was going for. Hmm. Yeah, so, so and, I no longer have to do that. Any of those, um, any any of those topics seem appealing to you? Yeah, whichever ones you want to talk about. I myself haven't been diving too deep into anything super serious. The main thing I've been like, I guess, researching is Morbius. So what is very, Morbius? It's a superhero movie that meme culture had almost propelled it to being profitable, despite it being an absolutely dog shit movie. It's just I find it really fascinating. What do you so find? I was, can you can yeah tell me about it it's so morbius is the latest marvel stinker it was came out in april 1st i think and no one saw it because no one cared about it it was kind of just a dead on arrival movie stars jared leto who most people don't like anyway and it gained notoriety online because it was a superhero big budget production that nobody was watching mm. so people started memeing about it like morbius is the highest grossing film of all time it has a 2,000% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's morbid time. Time to get morbed. Morb sweep. Morb summer. And from all of these memes, people actually went to see the film just to be in on the joke. And it's made $150 million, which is more than it's spent on production. Probably not marketing, but that's a movie that instantly flopped, but then got a second win because of memes. It's like one of those B-rated, uh, you know, B-list films that people yeah. will watch because it's so bad. Yep. Yeah. The movie itself is boring bad. It's not like a entertainingly bad movie, but the memes around it are what's entertaining. So people see it to be in on the memes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it opening day. It was a pretty <laughs> much empty theater. It's bad. It's a very bad movie. Wait, so opening the, day was empty theater? So how, yeah, that's, how did that's, people know that it was bad on opening day? So they did like pre-release screenings and... Almost everyone, even like the most shilly of studio or uh, sites, were saying it's bad. Like it's not a good movie. So people's expectations were super low. And then opening day, the few that saw it started making fun of it immediately. And then the memes started to snowball. How do you think movies like that get made? Uh, so it's a, it's Marvel, but it was produced by Sony. And Sony has a history of just making throwaway garbage for the sake of keeping their rights. So like the most recent Fantastic Four movie. This just strikes me as a movie that was just made because it needed to be. Hmm. And there was really nothing else put into it. What, what do you mean by that? It's a movie that was made just to keep their rights. How does that... Do you know how that works? From what I recall, Sony has a deal with Marvel where they get the rights to Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and I guess Morbius by extension, but only as long as they actively use the IP. So every few year, well for Fantastic Four, I think it was 10 years, I think it's every 10 years or whatever, they have to make a movie. 
Or I, I might see. be confusing it with Fox. I think it's Fox that might have done Fantastic Four. But it should be the same deal. That to keep the rights, they have to actively engage with the IP. Got it. So they have to at least produce something. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's... It might have been Fox for Fantastic Four. Hmm. And so it seems like this Morbius movie is sort of like a... It almost reminds me of like a little bit of GameStop, where, yeah. you know, it, it it's... Uh, I mean, I, as I understand with GameStop, it was actually like undervalued, right? So that's there, there was that one guy on Reddit mm-hmm. um, who was like doing an analysis and was saying like, even though brick and mortar game stores may be on the sharp, sharp decline because of online sales, even then GameStop is like undervalued. And then I think somehow he also found out that everyone was like short selling it. Yep. It, Asked, uh, they were short selling more shares than existed, which I, I still don't understand exactly how that's possible. But I don't know. Yeah, you... I don't. I don't get that either. And for Morbius, though, no one's making money. They're just making memories with memes. <laughs> yeah. So GameStop, I also heard is is making some kind of NFT thing. Yeah, they're, they're transitioning to NFTs, from what I read. I didn't get, go too deep into it, but it seems like the logical progression for GameStop. What, what do you think about NFTs? I'm not a fan. I think they're all a scam. What? How do you arrive at that conclusion? Uh, so the big thing with NFTs is the, the crypto bros will usually buy their own NFTs for a huge price just to promote it on Twitter. Like, I'm a struggling art student. I made this NFT and it just sold for 20 grand on OpenSea. And then they resell it for like 18 or something, hoping that a legitimate sale comes in so they make money. But it's been proven multiple times that they are literally buying their own NFTs just for a high price to market up. And I also think all the board apes and all the board ape clones are just really lazy cash grabs. Yeah, I'm just not can a you fan. tell me? I mean, I've heard a little bit about this stuff, but I'm not too familiar with it. What's up with the board ape and board ape clones? It's everyone believes they're going to make money off it but no one wants to be the last person holding a board ape so they buy into the hype they get a board ape for an astronomical price like 500 grand or something they squat on it for a little while let the hype continue to fester and then eventually hope to turn it around for more money than they paid for no one actually wants the board apes it's just they want to hold it long enough just long enough to get a sucker to pay more for it <laughs> so it's just something that has absolutely no use or value other than making money off hype so do do you what do you think about crypto do you think how much of this correlates with crypto and how much of nfts are you think like quite different from crypto because a lot of because you refer to the crypto bros right yeah i actually i don't i think crypto is fine like the main coins and everything i got into crypto in 2016 and while there's a lot of like really shady ones and a lot of dog shit i think there is a future for it but that future, I don't think, involves NFTs even in the slightest at all. It's just that idea of having that crypto blockchain ledger, I think, could have practical use down the line. But I also just don't really like the crypto bro community either. So I don't care if it hits zero, even though I have crypto of my own. What do you think is the value in crypto? So like being able to have that ledger, which has proven to be great for exposing scammers and shit, I think is valuable for like a business if you need to keep track of things. And since it's so quick and updated so like instantaneously, I think it just makes it for like a good customer service experience for a business, or at least it could. How, what do you mean future. by that? A good so company. like if, mm, so for example, if you're buying something and you want to know the history of the item, 
you can immediately just look up everything and every owner, every price and everything like that. So you can instantly know if what you're dealing with is legitimate or a scam. I see. Okay. So the decentralized information that's available lets you track things. Yeah, but I also don't know if it'll ever get to that point outside of scams. I just think there is a possibility where crypto is a legitimate thing. Right now, I don't think it is. So if it hits zero before then, I think it's probably deserved to. What 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 do you think needs to happen for it to reach that point? I I bro, I don't know. They they need to shut off everyone with a board ape picture on Twitter. It, it's killing it's killing all of it. It's so bad. It's it's so bad. Yeah, I was I was reading a little bit about um, Bitcoin, and so I guess Elon Musk bought a bunch of Bitcoin, and yep. then a few days or a few weeks, maybe I think it was days. He announced that Tesla would be taking Bitcoin as payment. Yeah. And then Bitcoin prices shot up. And then then they said they won't take it anymore. uh, Yeah. And then uh, so it's unclear whether he sold it or what he did with all of his Bitcoin. And then like a week later, he was like, yeah, we decided not to take it. And then Bitcoin prices dropped. I know. It's crazy. That's, but that's like the whole nature of crypto. That's why it's so hard to be like enthusiastic about it because it's shit like that. Pretty much everyone in crypto is the most annoying person that you can listen to. So it has such a negative reputation. So why do you think people get into crypto? Uh, To make money. I I think the only reason people are in crypto is FOMO and trying to make some quick cash off of it. Because they've seen a lot of other people make money off it. So to them, it's just like early enough where they're convinced they can still make a big payday out of it. Yeah, I I think we have. I remember talking to... um... I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, I think Anthony Milanakis. Mm, yeah, he was an early crypto. Yeah, er, like super early. Like we're talking mm-hmm. like early 2000s. Like, you know, so he he made a ton of money on Bitcoin. But yeah, um, yeah it's interesting, man. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm not really too much into crypto, but even I've been sort of I, I work with a lot of people in finance and it seems like especially some of the stuff with like tether and things like that are like very very shady oh yeah luna is the big one right now luna used to be the fourth most traded crypto and in seven days it went to one fiftieth of a penny it crashed from a hundred dollars a token to a one fiftieth of a penny in seven days i haven't been following what's going on with luna can you fill me in so I don't really fully understand it, but their their head guy, Doquan, was actually on Botez's live stream like the day before it started crashing, talking about like how it's entertaining to watch shit crash. And it was ironic because the next day his shit just completely exploded. But from the videos I watched trying to break down the situation, it seems like from the get-go it was built like a Ponzi scheme and it finally crumbled after Doquan made so many enemies that actively wanted it to fail. So there are people betting like $20 million against Luna uh, and like actively coming up and presenting how you can exploit Luna and how it could theoretically fall instantly into a death spiral. And I think with all of this compounding on top of each other all at the same time, it just started to collapse because it became very clear to a lot of people. It's pretty shady. But how how can you how does $20 million cause how can you bet? Because I think you can't like short a cryptocurrency, right? Like you can't. kind of can from what i understand the so the bet i'm talking about is there's a big guy on crypto who is publicly making fun of doquan and then said i'm betting you 10 million dollars this shit will be you know lower than it is right now 
in a year. And then Doquan's like, all right, bet. And he's like, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm upping it to 20. And Doquan stayed silent on that. But they did bet 10 million into a public account uh, betting against Luna. And then other people started betting against it as well. And it became common knowledge that if you had enough money, there was a way where you could instantly keep spitting out $50 million from Luna and driving the price down and down and down until what? it death spirals and depegs How does itself. that, what do you mean spit? But it, do, who's taking the other side? So I understand if this guy Doquan is taking the other side of the $10 million bet, but how can other people bet against Luna? So they had something called a stable coin, an al algorithmically stable stable coin, which historically always fails. And if they could depeg that stable coin, the whole thing collapses. And that's what they were proving, I think. Again, I don't fully understand mm. it. This is I'm just trying my best to regurgitate the videos I watched. So the idea was if you had enough money, which Luna was generating billions, there were some huge whales in there that did have enough money. If you had enough money, you could bet against Luna and depeg that stablecoin by Got doing it. something, and I don't remember what. Yeah, so I'm that sort of makes sense because I saw that you know there was Tether was supposed to trade at one. It, the whole point is that it's supposed to be pegged to the dollar, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. and I saw that Tether at some point was trading for like ninety nine cents, or it, yep. so, somehow the peg got removed, but it. You know, it's crypto is something that it sounds like both of us are sort of peripherally aware of, but not really yeah. like experts in. And the funny thing about that is I'm not sure that the people who are experts in crypto are actually experts in crypto. No one <laughs> is really an expert in crypto. It's such a wild wasteland. Uh, good news, though, to all the lunatics out there. It's what they call themselves. Doquan has announced Luna 2.0, baby. Terra Luna is back and better than ever, and people are already buying it. It's the most pathetic thing I've seen on Twitter in a minute. What, what, is, what does that mean? What is Luna 2.0? He's just starting. He, just, he, he relaunched it, and people are buying it. What, how does that work? How do you... He just relaunched it. He, <laughs> he just literally said, all right, Luna's dead. Here's 2.0. Does that mean he lost the bet? Yep, so he lost the bet. I don't think he's ever going to pay up, but yeah, he lost the bet. I thought you said they, they put money into a public account. They did, but he still has to like confirm the transaction last I saw. Oh, wow. Interesting. And and yeah, so Charlie, any idea where these people come from? Like these people who are making the, the coin? I couldn't tell you, man. So Doquan, he's an actual billionaire because of his shit coin. And I've never heard of him before this. I actually... Well, that's not true. I looked him up a little bit. Apparently, he tried one unsuccessful shitcoin in 2020 that didn't work. So I'm guessing he just started taking protocols like contracts from other cryptos and then eventually got lucky with Luna. I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know. Interesting. The world is changing, man. I know. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, anything in particular you think is like extra crazy? Mm, I guess staying in the same ballpark, just the delusion from people that are buying Luna 2.0 right now, it makes me sad. <laughs> like it's, I don't know, reading their comments because when it crashed, people lost everything because they believe so heavily in crypto. So there were posts about like how much they've lost as well as how much that money meant to them. And then people legitimately talking about how they're now suicidal and need like professional assistance. It was sad. And then those same people are buying into Luna 2.0. It's, I don't know, it's just sad to see. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, so we, I was, 
we had, I forget why, but some, something came up and I just shared some thoughts about crypto on, on stream a couple weeks ago and just why I think crypto is like fundamentally like different and some of the psychology, there's actually like a lot of different, um, I had sort of sketched out maybe even like a lecture series about like the psychology of like cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is like not quite. So what some people may think is that there's some cost fallacy here, which is like, okay, like I've already lost all my money, you know? So if you, if I go to a casino and I lose a hundred dollars, the only way I think I can get it back is by gambling again. Right? Like if I, I was up a hundred bucks at one point, now I'm down a hundred bucks. The only way to make myself whole, which is a strong bias that humans have, is to keep gambling. The interesting yep. thing about crypto is I think there's more to it than that. It's not just the sunk cost fallacy. It's the idea that every time I do this, I understand the game a little bit better. And it's my ignorance last time that like, because, you know, Luna was, uh, you were saying trading at 100, right? And so this time, like, I know when is the right time to get out. So it's kind of like sunk cost fallacy, but I think every, you know, I'm not surprised that people are sort of like, well, what happened with Luna? I'm sure if I talk to people, what they'll say is, yeah, what happened with Luna was that a group of people just basically tanked the coin. But if that had not happened, if this rare event where Doquan took the bet had not happened, then I would be rich. And there's actually this this other kind of it's interesting because there's actually a lot of neuroscience and psychology into this. There's this part of your brain that engages in something called counterfactual thinking, which is when you go back into the past and you kind of like rewrite history. If I had done this dot dot dot, then things would be different today, which is like it's an adaptive sort of like part of the mind. It's like, you know, if I screw something up, how do I learn how to do it properly? I go back in time and I think to myself, oh, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that or whatever. And then you like learn how to behave in the future. And so I think we're, we're seeing this kind of thing in crypto where everyone like people screw up and they're like, oh, now I know how to do it right. And so this time it'll work because I've learned my lesson. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's kind of the same mentality when it comes to gambling. Like if I had just got out three hands ago when I was up, I would have won this money. Now I know for next time. But then you still never get out at the right time or anything like that. It's the same with crypto. Yeah, well, it's so it seems right. So I, I think that that's definitely the case. But um yeah i mean do you what do you think about i i know that there's been a lot of uh of streamers who've gotten flack recently for um you know gambling streams and i know crypto sponsors a lot of streamers mm-hmm. and stuff like that what do you think about that stuff i for crypto sponsors like coinbase or like binance or something i don't have like a problem with it because it is just crypto exchanges as far as i know they they don't do anything besides just sell the coins but when it comes to stake which is the big one I think that's always in a really sketchy area because you're getting paid in their money to promote it. If you're using your own money because you're a gambling addict, it's one thing. It's, you know, it's still not good. But if you're using a company's money to get people to sign up to it, especially when you can sign up underage with no problem at all, because stake just allows you to sign up as long as you have a pulse, there's no verification, then it's a completely different issue, I think. So... So stake is I'm not, not a, a an exchange. It's a it's a gambling website or something. Yeah, it's a casino. It's an online crypto casino. Online crypto casino. What does that mean? So you play the slots, you play roulette, you play all the the classic games, but with crypto on their casino. Oh, interesting. So what crypto do you play with? Whatever crypto you put in. So you can sign up. 
at any age. There's no verification. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, you, if if you're eight years old and you accidentally got a hold of your parents' Coinbase account, you can send some Bitcoin to a stake account you just made and just start gambling. There's no verification. Wow, I think so that's I, a big I wonder problem. if that's actually part of the. I know this may sound kind of weird, but I wonder if like that because that's part of the in a sense the advantage of crypto, right? Like so. Mm-hmm. A big part of, and and maybe this is a, a controversial statement, but I thought the whole point or a big part of crypto is that it is to a certain degree like unrestricted, right? So it's like all on the blockchain. So there isn't any particular government who can track your moves, block your moves, things like that. That it's the, the, the whole point of crypto is that it's like, it's a free currency that can be used however you kind of want to, as long as someone else is willing to take it. Yeah, pretty much. But that doesn't apply when it comes to gambling, since it's so heavily regulated in the States. You're not even allowed to be on the same carpet as slot machines in a real casino. But crypto skirts that by being an online one. And since they don't verify age to play, anyone can sign up, which is the big problem. Um, What do you say? What do you mean when you say you're not allowed to be on the same carpet as slot machines? What does that mean? If you're under 21 and you go to like a hard rock, there's carpets that the slot machines are on. And if you are under 21, you're not allowed to be on that carpet at all on that floor. They'll ID you. If if you're under 21, they kick you out on the spot. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's there's a lack of regulation for these online. And is the lack of regulation because it's online or because it's crypto? I think just because it's crypto, I, I think the th- big thing is since it's a crypto casino and no one has really, you know, come up with any solutions to the the issue of kids being able to sign up, that they just don't bother. They're they're just not aware of it. So like, like I said, if you're using your own money to gamble because you're a gambling addict, that's one thing. Like, it's not great. It's pretty bad. But you're an adult making your own dis- decisions with your own money. It gets muddy when you are being paid to promote that casino and the kids that are watching have the ability to sign up with no problems at all. That's a huge like mm. problem. That's an actual like crime in the real world. But since it's online and it's a crypto casino, there's nothing to stop it from happening. If everyone that was watching like a sponsored stake stream was of the proper gambling age and they make that decision to go gamble after watching their favorite streamer do it, I still don't think it's a great thing because they're going to lose a lot of money and that money they lose directly profits the streamers. Not amazing, but they're adults making that decision. Kids don't know any better and they can freely sign up to these casinos. No problem. And I, I think that's a big so, issue. So, so I, what I'm kind of hearing is actually that the, the biggest problem is, is sort of the sign up process or the lack yeah, thereof. I think I think the biggest problem is the actual casino, which is stake. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, so I keep up with some of this stuff, but like quite peripherally. And, I, and you know, I, I know that I saw a clip from Miskiff where I, I think he was being quite honest and, and I really appreciated what he said. And he was like, you know, everyone has their price. And it's like, it's hard when someone comes to you and offers you. I, it just occurred to me, I don't know if you have any, you know, gambling sponsors or stuff, but. No. <laughs> I, I may have been setting I, I wasn't particularly trying to attack anyone but I, I think it's just you know it's something that's there's a lot that's changing in the world and I just like hearing your thoughts about that kind of stuff yeah no it's to, it's it's a completely different landscape it's all very different now things have become a lot shadier if you ask me uh, there's a lot of under the table kind of shit going on like Drake was doing a stake sponsored stream last night and there wasn't even like a hashtag ad in the title or anything so I don't know, it's just uh, it's it's a little wacky, a little weird out there. 
Why do you think things are getting shadier? How's that? Because you, they're finding ways to go around like the, the norm. So it's really lucrative to be immoral, it seems. People beg to be scammed. You can see it in crypto, for example. People just keep falling for Luna 2.0. So if you take advantage of these people that are really gullible and everyone wants to make a quick buck, you can make so much money off of it. It's just super easy. And it's hard to resist that temptation for a lot of these companies, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, Charlie, one thing I'd push back on a little bit, you know, having worked with people who I think would be called immoral is that I think oftentimes these, you know, people don't think that they're being immoral. You know? Well, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about the companies. I'm talking about companies taking advantage of it. Hmm. Yeah, oh, like that Steak too. has put so much money into getting everything on Twitch, a steak sponsored slot machine stream. Pretty much all of the people gambling right now are gambling on stake. And they've done a lot of money to ensure that's the case. Interesting. So I, I'm talking about the company specifically. I think a lot of people maybe don't do it with like the worst intentions ever or anything like that. But the companies themselves absolutely know what they're doing. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of like thinking through that for a second because I, I think oftentimes I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I just don't really know. And one of the mm -hmm. things that I try to do is like reserve judgment on someone's intentions until I've actually talked to them. You know, yeah. and at the same time, I, I think that it's not an unreasonable claim to make that stake knows what they're doing or that they're trying to be purposefully predatory. One thing that I can attest to is that I know that a lot of people will accuse public people or companies of being purposefully predatory. And I, I personally don't see it that way if I've had some kind of relationship with them and have sort of really heard their, their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I make the claim about stake because they very well aware of what they're doing. They're an offshore casino. Uh, they're, I don't remember where they're stationed, but it's in like a really lax gambling area where they're able to do a lot of shady shit they don't have verification to put money in but they do have verification to take money out so if they find out you're <laughs> under 21 you won't get your money or you're under whatever gambling oh, age wow it's probably 21 to them. you won't get your money they know what they're doing yeah that that, that kind of stuff i think really wow you can you need verification to get your money out but not to put money in that's really interesting yeah. Yeah, that's so wild. I, I think that one's one of the companies you could say with a high level of confidence. They're not ignorant. They know exactly what they're doing. Interesting. Yeah, that changes things a lot. I mean, because I, I, like I said, I try to reserve judgment, but you know, that sort of mm, sounds kind of shady. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I don't think every company is as bad as stake or as egregious as stake when it comes to things like that. So I do definitely understand your perspective there, but for stake in particular, the one that I was talking about, I absolutely think you can make the claim that they're very well aware and very predatory. Hmm. What do you think is, so So you mentioned um, that things seem to be getting shadier, right? Like, mm -hmm. and people are sort of learning to skirt the rules. I'm also sort of noticing that maybe the rules can't keep up, like, some, sometimes, so I was kind of thinking a little bit about all the school shootings and stuff, and everyone's talking about gun control, which I think is definitely a piece of the, the puzzle. And there's good data that shows that people have done comparative studies between like the US, the UK and Australia, that basically show that culturally, like 
in terms of values and preferences and stuff like that, these three nations tend to be like pretty similar. They also have similar, somewhat similar demographics, somewhat similar socioeconomic status, things like that. Like the economies and forms of government are like relatively similar. And that, um, you know, the UK and Australia have far fewer shootings because they seem to have gun control laws. And there also appears to be a causal relationship there where I think Australia, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, like instituted stronger gun control. And prior to those laws passing, they were similar in terms of the U.S., like per capita number of deaths and things like that. But I, I think that when we're sort of looking at this stuff, like it's more than that. So one of the things that I've been wondering a lot about is that to my knowledge, gun control hasn't gotten that much worse in the U.S. Like, I don't know if you're you keep up with this stuff or not, but like, you know, I, I think like guns were pretty available. And a lot of people had a lot of guns like 20 or 30 years ago in the United States. But what has changed is is the Internet and and like mental health and some of these other factors. Um, any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, so what you just said is something I thought about a little bit. Uh, it's not something I think about too often because I just I find it to be a really depressing topic that I don't have an answer for. But I do remember growing up, I had a lot more access to like being around guns in public. Uh, I remember there were like convenience stores that would have guns for sale. <laughs> That's not really the case anymore. Uh, now it seems like there's it's a little bit more difficult to like find them in the wild, but it seems the process is still pretty easy. I think there is merit that to the claim that maybe they should at least increase the age or something because 18 is probably a little young, especially considering it seems to work to some level. Pretty much every mass shooter is 18. They literally get the gun when they're 18 and then commit the crime. So they didn't do it when they were 17. They're not getting it illegally at 17 years old. Hmm. Maybe just wait a little bit longer, maybe make the age a little bit later might help. I don't really know. But I don't think gun control has gotten super lax. I actually think it's a little harder to find guns now than when I was growing up. And I grew up in Florida, so maybe I was just around like all the really like wild gun-toting areas. But now I don't have guns for sale at convenience stores around me when I'm out in public. It's just one of those things where I think people have been changing, probably because of them feeling so like isolated or like locked in these really unhealthy echo chambers online. I really think that is a big contributing factor. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I think that's where part of what I think is challenging about this discussion is that, um, you know, so I think there's good kind of scientific evidence that stronger gun control laws will make a significant impact on the problem. And at the same time, just like you, I've actually found that gun, I don't think the availability of guns and over the course of my life is like drastically increased. I, I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of, uh, you know, changes that have happened with like semi-automatic or like, I, I think the, the guy at, uh, you know, from the school shooting last week was, or sorry, a couple of days ago. Wow. It's already been, <laughs> felt like a long time ago, but that's yeah. probably, we're just getting numb to it. But he had like, I think two AR-15s. And I was also reading about how like people actually fired shots at him before he even went into the school. Like he crashed his car into a ditch and people tried to stop him and they like opened fire on him and they just let him go in. Yeah, I read that. That was pretty upsetting. Yeah, it's wild. Um, any sense about what we can do about echo chambers? I don't think there's anything you can do about echo chambers. That's the nature of the Internet. You will always find these like 
fucking poisonous pockets of people that you'll just fall into and never leave. And to you, it's normal, but to everyone on the outside, it's dangerous. You know, I have no doubt, like, I saw those text messages from the shooter. I mean, he's speaking like someone you would see in, like, a really degenerate Twitter group, right? Like, it's just these people that fall into these extreme groups and never leave and just never get that, like, reality of, wow, this is bad. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So we, we've been doing some research and supporting a couple of organizations who want to better understand some of these, like, internet-based phenomenon. Um, and one of the things, one of the key things that I, I think is happening that we don't really appreciate is, so when you watch a YouTube video, YouTube will recommend content, right? Yeah. And so what tends to get populated, so I think there are a couple of features on the internet. The first is that the most emotionally engaging content is what rises to the top. So what we're sort of seeing is like the more polarizing the content is, the more likely it is to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, clickbait is an example of that. I think like one manifestation of that core principle is clickbait. So like the more that you can emotionally engage someone through a thumbnail or a title, and this is something that even people in our community have criticized us for. Um, and so it's something that we're kind of going back to the drawing board and, and kind of considering because I think their points are good. Um, but so what, what tends to happen is, is people like over time on the internet, there's this phenomenon called online drift where what happens is you watch like one YouTube video and then YouTube figures out that in order to keep you engaged, we're going to show you more of the same stuff. And over time, it'll like slowly radicalize you. And so, so it, it's really interesting. And I don't think it's like necessarily YouTube's fault because YouTube's job, for example, is just to give people the content that they want to, right? There's like billions of YouTube videos. So it's, it's in YouTube. I don't think it's like nefarious that they're trying to help you sift through all of the content on YouTube so that you can have like a good experience there. Like I know mine, for example, I've recently, I have a bunch of Elden Ring PVP videos popping up, right? And I, like, I'm glad, like I, that's I'm, what I'm interested in. But the interesting thing is that if you look at sort of how these echo chambers form, it seems like a lot of this content aggregation and like content, like kind of pushing you in a particular direction. And what you'll even do is there's, there have been studies of online behavior and mass shooters and things like that. And what they discover is that there is this like drift where you start out on Twitter and then you wind up on Reddit and then you wind up on subreddits and then like particular subreddits and like more radical subreddits. And then you wind up on Discord servers. Then you wind up on more radical Discord servers. And like over time, you like drift from a general exposure to like things that are radicalizing. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't heard that term before, but uh, that's definitely something that sounds like it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild, like just what is we look at what's happening on the internet, like sort of what we're doing to ourselves in terms of, you know, steering clear of, of just gravitating towards content because that's what we do. And then as we gravitate towards content. So I've been struggling a lot to try to figure out like what to do about this, but um, I'm, I'm not so quite sure because I think it's sort of like almost a manifestation of like the laws of how internet content dissemination works. 
Yeah, I don't know if there is anything you can do about it, to be fair. Like, even as the platforms, I really don't know how much there is that you can control. It seems like it's more of an individual thing where you're just constantly hungry for more and more content, so you keep drifting further and further down the rabbit hole until you end up somewhere weird. Yeah. Any weird rabbit holes that you've stumbled upon? I don't know if I've stumbled on any weird ones recently. Nothing too crazy and nothing too new. Hmm. At least not that I can think of off the top of my head. Mainly just like the Luna stuff, which isn't really a rabbit hole. That one's just like a pit of misery. I don't think there's anything... Anything did, weird. Did you hear about this like misinformation um division or something that that the u.s government recently started did you know what's that so so they i think they like tried to start some kind of like division of like misinformation handling right because like there's a lot of like misinformation around covid and stuff like that and i think it kind of got torpedoed because it sounded very draconian Mm -hmm. right so like misinformation you know the control of information sounds quite sort of fascist or i don't know if fascist or authoritarian is the right term but but anyway it was just something that crossed my mind because i i I think they tried to sort of do something about it but it seems like really really hard like how do you know which information is correct yeah i don't know that's a that's a pretty slippery slope and it's it's definitely not a cool sounding name it just sounds evil (laughs) right (laughs) and <laughs> people in chat are joking about ministry of truth and things like that yeah. but it's it's interesting because like there is you know you could you as you were saying earlier like you've got these like people on 4chan that are like uh jfk is still alive <laughs> i know well it's that so 4chan themselves doesn't believe it they just do it because it fucks with QAnon, and they're just kind of like 4chan's lol cow because pretty much anything 4chan tells them people in that group believe wholeheartedly so they just make fun of them through like these really goofy conspiracy ideas. Yeah, what do you know about QAnon? I I don't really get it. Uh, I just can't believe it's real. So to me, they're just kind of clowns that do goofy shit. But apparently, there's a lot of really like dangerous ones too. The only ones I ever see are the ones waiting at that Dallas street for JFK Jr.'s revival and stuff like that, and the ones that go around with signs saying. Uh, I don't know, Zack Snyder's eating Hollywood babies. These vampires in Hollywood are real and stuff. Who is it Zach just Snyder? seems like it's a group of people that believe any and all fanfic conspiracies. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, there's also been some recent studies about psychology of like what people believe. Like, you know, what, conspiracy theory kind of like personality traits and things like that so i think it's people are trying to investigate like how it is that people can believe this stuff yeah i just don't get it i don't know how you get to that point where you actually believe in reality with your whole heart that a man has been revived like actually come back from the dead to run for presidency it's just i don't know it just blows my mind because these aren't like mentally deranged people like they hold a job they exist in society like they don't stand out as you know some kind of raving lunatic and yet somehow they still believe these things and wait with candles outside of that road waiting for jfk jr yeah so it's interesting because you use the phrase mentally deranged or they're not mentally deranged right yeah exactly like they're just 
average Joes, the God-fearing American guys that for some reason believe this weird shit. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I think like part of the, the other thing that I've been sort of struggling with is where mental health or mental illness fits into this stuff. Right. So like people who are investing in crypto, like a lot of times what will happen is you'll get people who will kind of label things as mental health or mental illness, which I think has a fair. I mean, there's a certain truth to that. Uh, and, you know, at the top of the list is I think there's other oftentimes not or black and white discussions, not nuanced discussions about whether school shooters are mentally ill. Do you have any thoughts about that, by the way? I think they absolutely are. I, I would definitely be on the side that says anyone that like actually commits a crime like that is mentally unwell. I think I can say that with a high level of confidence that I would view them as a mentally unwell person. So mentally unwell meaning what? I would say I would go as far as to call them like like actually like deranged. There's something that went wrong in their brains that broke down a barrier that told them that this is something that they can and should do. So I would absolutely put them in like a legitimate like Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane. Like I don't view them as having like mental awareness anymore. They like they've deteriorated to a point that's almost like subhuman to commit something like that. Yeah, so I know this is going to sound kind of weird, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> And, and that's where sometimes I think that like when people do things that are unbelievable, oftentimes people will jump to the conclusion that their mind is not functioning properly, right? So like, and this is where like, if you look at things like suicide bombers, for example, like are suicide bombers, do you think suicide bombers are mentally ill? I would say so. Yeah. To take your own life like that for whatever reason, I would absolutely say that. Yeah, so I, I think that's where sometimes what I'm I'm almost hearing you say is that if, if if a human being behaves in a manner that is so contrary to what we consider normal, you would consider that a mental illness. I I guess a, a better way of illustrating the point, and this is a, this is going to uh, something that I learned about a while ago. There was a guy in Canada, completely normal guy from everything I read, and one day on a bus he snapped, just stabbed a completely random woman and then ate her eyeballs. Oh, did the stream just crash? Uh, the, my stream, uh, something happened with my, um, something happened with my, uh, video card, I think, but it seems to have sorted itself out. Hold on. You can still hear me, right? Yeah, I can still hear you. Okay. All right. You were saying, sorry. So there's this, uh, a individual in Canada one day on a bus he snapped he stabbed and beheaded a woman and ate her eyeballs on the bus in front of everyone with her decapitated head he would scare people with it as they got off the bus and locked them in absolute breakdown of mental sanity engaged in cannibalism it, absolutely horrible stuff that guy went to jail for I think eight years and was let back into general society they deemed it just like a brief episode of psychosis or something like that and I just disagree. I think when someone crosses a line like that, I don't view it as something that can you can ever come back from. That's someone that I don't think should have ever been let back into society, even if it was like a acute episode of psychosis. I just don't see how someone who has something like that isn't in a place of mental 
instability and danger to the people around them. Well, so let me, uh, so let me ask a couple questions. So I, I'm, I'm not saying that mass shooters are not mentally ill. So I, I think that there's a decent chance that many of them are, but I think that there's like more nuance to it. So let me ask you this. If we're saying that that person is mentally ill, right? Mental illness can be treated, right? Mm-hmm. So if that person is treated, do you think that they can be let back into society? How can you ever know if they're fully cured, though? There'd be no way of ever knowing for sure if they actually, like... Because this was a you're, a, a you're, break with no history. You're, just, 100, just... you're 100% correct that you can't predict the future if you're a mental health professional. You right. can never know. But we do have standards of treatment, right? So we can sort of say that this thing is in remission. It's in sustained remission for five years. We can't know, We can't see the future. We can't ever know what's going to happen. But we have a lot of confidence that people who are stable for this period of time. I have no idea about this particular case, and it just sounds really bizarre. I've worked with people who are acutely psychotic, and I've never heard of any anything like this ever happening. But, um, you know, I think if we're sort of saying that people are ill, then then it sort of stands, generally speaking, we believe that people who are ill can be treated and in sustained remission, especially if it's an acute psychotic. I would sort of think about something like substance use in a, in a situation mm-hmm. like that. Because usually substance use, when you see just really, like normal people don't just start murdering people because of an acute psychotic. I've like literally never heard of that. The only situations that I've heard of where that kind of behavior happens usually involve substances of abuse because that's what precipitates such a, bizarre aggressive psychotic experience most people who have acute psychotic experiences are they're not dangerous like this is a very common misconception that people who are psychotic and people who have schizophrenia are like dangerous like most of them are not like they don't schizophrenia when you really have it 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 has it comes with so much disorganization so people will say like oh you know like these school shooters and stuff like maybe they're schizophrenic i don't know i've never evaluated them but I've worked with a ton of people with schizophrenia and most of them, even when they're like acutely psychotic are not like dangerous. It's actually, and part of what, what bothers me about sort of assuming that this is mental illness is that I think it really misrepresents mental illness. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying it's all mental illness. I think the question was, do you think they suffered from mental illness? And my answer was, yes, I absolutely think there was a level to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't think that you were, blaming mental illness for that, but I appreciate your clarification. Um, but it, it, you know, I, I think that it sort of stands to reason, right. That like something about the way that this person is viewing the world is like so divorced from what we would consider healthy. Mm -hmm. But that's where I, I sort of, the reason I brought up a suicide bomber is because I, I think I've also observed that there is a certain amount of indoctrination or conditioning that I don't know would be like, a neurotransmitter malfunction, right? So if we think about things like depression or major depressive disorder, we sort of know that there's like a biological basis for it. Whereas I don't know that the people who become suicide bombers have like a biological basis for what happens to them. Some of that appears to be actually like more nurture than nature in terms of their taught and begin to believe particular things. They're, they're parts of echo chambers, and then they start to, like, you know, behave particular ways. They have different sets of values. Any thoughts about yeah. that? 
No, I mean, I think that makes sense. I just think when it ultimately comes down to it, the decision for, in the example of a suicide bomber, to actually give your own life to something, I think there has to be some level of, like, I guess, mental conditioning or something mentally that's gone wrong that allows you to make that decision at the very end. Because most people have some level of self-preservation. Sure. I think that's like a very normal thing. And when that's not there, you have to wonder, well, why and how? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where, uh, so I think if, if we're, I would put, toss in conditioning into that. That's why I kind of think, because I've been struggling with this stuff a lot because um, I'm trying to understand, like, what we can do to alter the course. So, like, here, here's the thing that I sometimes think about is that there are a lot of, like, people who could be budding into school shooters, right? So the, the kid who was 18 got there somehow whether it's mental illness, whether it's indoctrination, whether it's like being a part of an echo chamber, it's probably a combination of all of the above. Um, I was also seeing recently that the American Psychological Association recommends a mental, uh, like a therapist to student ratio of about 500 students to one therapist. And the number is closer to, I, I think the number right now is 1,000, I mean, uh, closer to 3,000 to one. So we have a severe deficiency of mental health treatment. And like, I just wonder about, you know, three years ago, is there something that we could have done if society was different, if our interventions were different, if our resources were different? Is there, what could we have done to prevent this from happening? So gun control is a piece of it. But like, if we're sort of assuming that mental illness is a component, how do we fix that? And that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, I don't know what the answer to that would be either. But I had a question for you because I'm kind of sure. curious your perspective. You mentioned indoctrination for things like this. And I think that makes sense when it comes to like suicide bombing or like killing for like a military cause or something, because you can convince people that they're doing it for a good cause. How do you indoctrinate someone to be like a mass shooter, like a school shooter? Where does that indoctrination come from, you think? Oh, I think it comes from the echo chamber. I agree with you completely. Okay. So, so I think, and you can even look at like manifestos, right? Where people think mm -hmm. that they don't, they think they're striking a blow for like goodness and justice. They even will cite other school shooters as like heroes. They're like, you know, this, this world like is, uh, so I, I personally think that it has a lot to do with like resentment and hurt that people are sort of driven to the fringes of society and they see no hope of, any kind of like recovery or any kind of like reconciliation with the world. And so they've lost at life already. And some people who lose at life will sort of go down the route of suicide. Other people who have lost at life are like, I'm going to burn it down with me. Yeah. Um, it, you know, sometimes I think even in the most deranged kind of thinking, like people think that they're doing someone a favor. But I think that a lot of this stuff, if, if you look at like where a lot of like hatred comes from, I think hatred most commonly stems from one of two places, either stems from conditioning where you're taught from a young age to hate someone else. So if you look at like, you know, anti-religious sentiment or like racial sentiment or things like that, a lot of that is like culturally or not, it's conditioned. So if you grow up in a household where people are, are anti a particular religion or anti a particular race, those are going to be the values that you internalize. The second place is that oftentimes hatred comes from hurt. I think that's like the, in my opinion, the number one case, like we, we learn to hate 
that which hurts us, which is sort of what we're biologically designed to do. And what really terrifies me about this stuff is when I think about mental illness. So when I think about illness, the whole idea is it's like not the way the body is supposed to function. Right. So if we think about a heart attack, like a heart attack is 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 a malfunction of the heart. What actually terrifies me some about some of this like emerging I think deranged behavior is maybe a better way to put it, is that I'm not so sure that this is a malfunction of the mind or the brain. I don't like, I'm not sure. You know, I haven't worked with these people extensively. I've never talked to a school shooter, so I I don't really know. I'm sure that you could diagnose them with something. And I think that treatment would, in my mind, would undoubtedly help them. And at the same time, I'm not so sure that like, because I don't know that indoctrination is the same as illness. I think both will lead to deranged behavior, um, but it, it, you know, it's something that, like, I think our our conceptions of mental illness are maybe not sufficient, or our conceptions of like behavior need to be more nuanced than just mental illness. Okay, I think all of that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, mean, I would be I, curious, though, if you did have a conversation with one of the school shooters, what do you think you would, like, learn from them? What, like, what would be, like, the main things you'd want to learn from them? Like, where would you steer that kind of conversation oh, as mean, a professional? Like, what would I learn from them? The like, what would answer. you want to, like, to try and get out of them? Yeah, so I, my, I'll start first with a quantitative answer. I'm sure the, I would imagine the answer would be a ton. And, and that's where, like, you know, I mean, I would have the conversation in a way that I have it with anyone else, which is so we had a we had a interview uh, several months ago with someone who had a lot of labels that I think were negative in nature. So the person was racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, and and was sort of like you know labeled as a as, as a Trump supporter. And some people were kind of upset because they were like, you're giving Trump supporters a bad name. But what I actually discovered by talking to the person is that, like, there is a human being behind all of those labels who's, like, actually an amazing person. And, and it was so interesting how we judge people based on those labels. And, like, one of the things that we try to do here on stream is, like, really, this has been my experience is that I've worked with a lot of people. You know, I've worked in jails. I've worked with homeless populations, things like that. And there's, like, most of the time it's, like, good humans. I work with a couple people who are actually bad humans. And even then, sometimes some of them will say, like, when I work with with real sociopaths, they'll say, like, how do I be less of a bad human? Like, I want to be a better human, even though there's a fundamental piece of me that's, like, sociopathic. But in terms of kind of answering your your question, you know, I, I would like to understand what motivates them. I would like to understand how they started to believe the things that they believe, you know, what were they trying to accomplish? Like, like I'd like to understand not just the fruit that comes off of the tree, but where did that, where did the leaves come from? How did the tree grow? What was the sapling and what was the seed? Because I think we, until we understand that, like there's this concept in medicine called primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. So even when you're preventing a problem, you can prevent a problem from happening a second time. You can prevent risk factors developing into a problem, 
or you can prevent the risk factors happening in the first place, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, so th sense. there are actually several layers of prevention. And I think when it comes to school shootings, like we need to apply all three of those. So is this, and I think it like some of this stuff could be super simple, Charlie. Like it could be as simple as like, I don't know that these people are taught how to communicate. You know, like I think if someone sat, sat them down and like even just help them understand, like this is how you form healthy relationships. Because a lot of times like what we, and I sort of see this a lot with, with some of the incels and other people that we work with. Um, but a lot of them, just their whole conception of the world never gets questioned. And it's not that you have to convince them otherwise. It's just you need to ask them questions. And the more that you ask them questions, the more, like, you're not trying to trick them or anything like that. Like, the more you ask someone, okay, like, help me understand why you believe what you believe. Like, the more that they have to build up their belief system from the ground up, the more it kind of falls apart if it's not, like, based in reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I understand. But, I, I mean, I, I would love to understand, you know, what was your childhood like? Like, like this, the resentment that bore this fruit today. Where was that resentment born? And, like, what, how did you nurture it? How did it grow? Like, what was the fertilizer? What was the water? You know, because I, I think that this is where I've talked to a lot of people who have done bad things and e uh, even kids. Right. So you'll get like kids who like go to juvie and stuff. Right. And, and the, the challenge is that a lot of times people are looking to punish the kid. But very it's very hard to ask the question, like if a kid is like smearing poop all over the walls and, and like, you know, like assaulting other kids and things like that, like very few people ask the question, why is this kid doing this in the first place? Like, what's going on with this kid? Do you think if you had access to, let's say, every kid in the world, every or every kid in the country, and you talk to each and every one of them, do you think you would be able to identify, like, someone who is genuinely at risk to become the next school shooter? Like, is there certain things you would look for that would, like, trigger alarms in your head that's like, wow, this kid might actually 100%. be a threat? Okay. What, what would those factors look like? Well, so a part of psychiatric training involves assessing. So we all talk about like assessing for suicide, right? So like people, if mm -hmm. you go see a therapist, do people will say like, you know, are you suicidal? And we're taught how to do formal risk assessments. So a formal risk assessment is when you ask a lot of questions about like, you know, what's the, like, so how do we tell if someone's really suicidal? If I post something on 4chan and I say, I'm gonna kill myself, is that person actually suicidal? You know, or or like, you know, you'll have people who will sometimes use suicidal language as expressions of frustration. So you'll have people who will say things like, oh, my God, like this freaking if this toilet gets clogged one more time, I'm gonna blow my brains out. So people will say things like that. Right. Is that person actually suicidal or are they just expressing frustration using like colloquial language? So we're taught ways that. Um to assess whether suicidality is like how significant it is. Now, once again, I mean, these, these, these assessments are not, I mean, they're far from perfect. They're actually good studies that show that even trained mental health pro professionals are very bad at predicting suicide. Like we, we just don't know. Cause we, the short answer is that you can ask as many questions as you want to, but no mental health treater can see the future. Right. That being said, there's something that there's a part of our training, which, 
um, is less popular, but we're also trained to assess for homicidal ideation. So we're, we're, we're trained to assess whether people are at risk to other people. And that too, when I say 100%, if I remember your question correctly, could I predict it 100% of the time? No. But are there things that I could hear in those interviews that would make me concerned that this person could be, become a school shooter? 100% yes. Yeah, well, there's, there was never any chance of like being 100% yeah. accurate or anything. But, I was just wondering there's, if there's there were like absolutely, certain factors. Absolutely, because that's, it's, it's part of what we do, right? So like, and this is the kind of thing where it's sort of like, you know, I would just ask simple questions like, you know, do you, and it's not just about fantasies. I, I mean, that's not really where I would go. It's, it's more like, you know, like, tell me about how unjust the world is. Mm -hmm. Right. And then let's like, you know, tell me about like, you know, why is the world like so unjust? Like, how does it, who, who are the winners and who are the losers? Who, like, how is it determined? Like which camp is in, like who falls into which camp? And there are all kinds of features because, I, you know, we've worked with a lot of, you know, people who I, th I think could have ended up in very bad places. And I'm really grateful for even the people in our community who will share some of these thoughts, like even on our subreddit, like there was actually just a post today, which was excellent about, I have like incel like thoughts. Can we like talk about it? And it was a great post. Someone was like, this is what I believe. Like I'm trying to understand, like, is this real? Is this not real? And like, it's awesome that people are sort of like talking about it, but it's not an echo chamber, right? And the people's responses are not, yeah, what you believe is 100% correct. People are like, well, and it's really great. I mean, even community members are like, well, how did you learn to believe this stuff? Like, you know, that's not the way that I see it. So it's the opposite of an echo chamber. Um, but I, I would start with questions like, you know, are there winners and losers? How is it determined whether winners or losers? And what kind of recourse would you have if you were in the loser bracket or bucket? Like, you know, what are your options? And, and that's where I think there are a lot of features, which personally, like, we've done a lot of research on this. And as I mentioned earlier, we advise some institutions about, like, how to make these assessments or what to look out for. But, um, you know, there are certain things like sort of like a deterministic mindset. So the idea that, and this is what I think a big part of it is like, once a human being believes that there is nothing they can do to alter their future, that's when I think extreme behavior happens. Would that be like one of the main things you'd look for is someone that's completely lost hope in their future? hundred percent. Okay. Right. So like it's, it's hundred percent. That's what I would look for. And so then the question becomes, you know, you talk to them about it and then you're like, okay, so what are your options if you have no hope in the future? And this is where a lot of people will turn towards suicide, right? Because they don't believe that things can ever get better. And some people, once they enter these kinds of echo chambers, will sort of think about like striking a blow for my beleaguered group. So other things that I would assess for would be a sense of like common identity that um, outweighs individual identity so there there i think a lot of the worst human behavior happens because people stop being individuals and they be part of a group so if you look at like nazis right it's like nazis were doing stuff for the sake of the nazis and for some higher order goal and i think actually most of the worst behavior in human history 
is not due to negative emotions. It's actually due to positive emotions. Like where they think they're doing something good for whatever they're aligned with. Yeah, because if you think about it, like like the the natural human tendency to commit a harmful act, like we're not harmful creatures by nature. At least I don't believe so. You can argue against that. But I think if you just look at the majority of humans, like most humans are not violent. Most humans don't kill anyone in their in, in their life. Most humans don't assault anyone in their life. Most most humans just aren't like that. We tend to be and even in the animal kingdom, which is brutal and violent, most conflict is not lethal in in the animal kingdom between, you know, like animals of the same species. So obviously, if you're like a lion who's hunting a gazelle, like that's going to end in, in lethality. But if you look at two males that that fight, the mortality rate from like you know, alpha conflicts is not very high, I think. I don't really know statistics. But generally speaking, people will like joust, right? But like one of them doesn't die. And and so human beings are not intrinsically, we're all capable of violence, sure. But most people are not out there being violent. So then the question becomes, what does it take to overcome a human being's natural reluctance to be violent? And that's where I think like the greater good is is a very strong motivator because I'm not doing this. You know, I have to do this lesser evil for the sake of the greater good. Mm. And I think that's where things like suicide bombing comes from, right? It's, it's, it's for this like greater purpose. It's like this noble thing. It's something that we have to do. We have to, we have to protect people like the, you know, there's, there's a lot of in school shooters. There's a lot of like, and, anarchist sort of thinking around it, right? Like the, everything needs to be torn down um, for the incels that were mass shooters, which I understand now that mass shooter uh, manifestos are changing a little bit. They're like a little bit more politically oriented. Whereas uh, 10 years ago, they were very like kind of incel oriented where people felt like, you know, society was unjust and, and things like that. Have you seen, so have you read like most of the like manifestos, like Elliot Roger, the most recent shooter as well? Have you read those manifestos? Not in their entirety. Okay. I mean, some of them yeah, are like, curious. like 60 pages long, right? Oh uh, yeah. I think the Buffalo one was 180 yeah, or something so crazy. I, yeah. Like they're very long. I, I've, I've, I'm pretty sure I've read every scientific paper that analyzes the manifestos and I read parts mm-hmm. of the manifestos myself. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense then. Okay. And I mean, there, there aren't that many, I mean, there, there, there are many, but there are not that many scientific papers analyzing their language. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there isn't a ton of stuff analyzing the language? I remember with Elliot Rogers' manifesto, it almost became like a joke with a lot of the shit that was in it because of the way he talked. And I feel like a lot of people don't know about the manifestos. They know they exist, but they never actually read them. Is it just because of the length and it's a big barrier to entry or... What That's probably a part there? of it. I think that um, there are a couple of other issues. The first is that I don't know. I, I, this, I'm saying I don't know. Isn't This is not my area of expertise. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much can be gained out of a written thing as opposed to a conversation. So if you look at the way that psychologists are trained, we're not trained based on evaluating written material. Right. Like we're not analysts of written material. We're analysts of like mental function. And like, generally speaking, we use conversation as our best instrument to understand the inner workings of the mind. So when someone writes something, 
like people can do thematic analyses and symbolism and all this kind of crap, right? Like you can do that sort of stuff. But I just don't know how, what the correlation is between an analysis and something clinical. Because what we assess for, so for example, like when, when we assess for schizophrenia, it's not the, con you can talk about the content of delusions, but if you actually like look at the criteria for the diagnosis of something like schizophrenia, the fact that they have delusions is part of the criteria, but not the content of the delusions. It's a bunch of other stuff. So people who have psychotic disorders will have disorganized thinking and disorganized speech. Hmm. So they'll be like disheveled. They'll also, we look at all these other kinds of things. Like even if you kind of walk down the street, you know, we have this instinctive way of sometimes we'll see homeless people and we'll be like that homeless person. Like I'm going to like stay away from them. You'll have this instinctive kind of revulsion towards particular people. And that's because your, your brain is actually like looking at a lot of stuff like facial expressions, eye contact. So even if I like look at your eyes, you have a fluctuating, like your eyes move around, right? And, and my eyes move around and I have fluctuations in my facial expression. There are all these kinds of things that we look at, which if we stop doing those things, if I start talking to you like this and I adopt a monotone and I don't change where I'm looking, right? And what, ha like, what are you feeling right now? Uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. Like that. Right. And you even know I'm, I'm faking it. You know, I'm yeah, faking it. It's just, it's just an uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Right. So these are the kinds of things that we're actually trained towards. And, and that's where like, you can't get that from a manifesto. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a really good answer to it then. Do you think there's any value at all in reading through the, the manifestos? Cause I remember with the Unibomber, a lot of people read his manifesto. In fact, I think his manifesto has like its own Wikipedia page at this point. It was like a pretty well-studied thing, but not anymore. Now they don't look at these kind of people's manifestos. Uh, do I think there's any value? Yes. But I don't think that... So here, here's the thing. I think what causes the behavior is the process of radicalization. It's not the b radical beliefs that you hold. So in th does that make sense? Yeah, I think so, that makes sense. So, I mean, like, this is where, like, you can have... You know, so if like one person writes a manifesto about being a school shooter, if one person writes a manifesto where they're they're going to, you know, 9-11 and like, you know, if when Osama bin Laden made his like statements about why he did what he did, you can analyze all of those things. But I think that what you're going to see is that the, the content of the I'm just going to call it delusional. I can't make that clinical assessment. I'm sort of using it colloquially, but the content of what they believed is not what, I don't know how to say, like, you can, like, even if the, what they believed is wrong, you can try arguing with them or giving them evidence, they're not going to listen to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I see Once they saying. believe it, like, you know, the QAnon people, you can tell them, hey, by the way, we can't revive people from the dead. I don't know if you knew that. And the QAnon people are like, they're not going to care about that, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> well, I mean, you never know with necromancy. I mean, anything is possible. I, I mean, presume, well, necromancy is... Yeah, we, you know, I don't know if that's a real thing, but, you know. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's an entire community of necromancers that might disagree with you. you know uh, my point exactly. So, so like, you know, you're going to, I don't know that, that really countering their belief system is actually an effective way of communication. And this is actually what really pisses me off about 
political discussion is that like I was watching this clip of a reporter asking a particular politician about, you know, why this keeps happening. And like the questions were an attack. And, you know, there was there was no there was no actual like questions have stopped being so normally like when I think of a question, and it's weird because I actually have to formally teach this. So I'll even like teach people like what's the purpose of a question? Like Charlie, what's the purpose of a question? Get an answer. Uh, so I would disagree. I would say I think that you are correct. Unfortunately, you are correct. So so that that's where I think that's why most people ask questions to get an answer. And in particular, oftentimes they're looking for a particular answer, right? Or mm -hmm. they're setting up the question in a way that the answer like it's like a loaded question, you know? Yeah, but I what, mean, that's kind of the nature of uh, debates now. I think well, debates are entirely pointless online. Uh, you're I, never going to change anyone's belief. I completely agree. Try. So that's why, like, when I, so this is why I, what I have to teach people and I have to, like, recalibrate. And I'm like, the, re the reason you ask a question is to learn. Like, a question, like, if I know the answer, why am I asking a question? If you have an opinion, just state the opinion. Don't pretend it's a question. And if you have, if you actually want to learn something, ask a question and you'll be like amazed at how much this helps like interpersonal relationships. So I had to learn this in terms of my own marriage, but also in terms of couples counseling and even like in esports teams. So you'll have people who are like Socratic teachers in esports teams. And I try to knock this behavior out of people where it's like, I'm going to ask you questions to convince you of my point. And that's where, like, even even debates, I agree with you, are, are useless because the presumption is that, like, one party is right and one party is wrong. Whereas, like, I think what we need to have instead of debates is, like, how about we actually have a conversation between two people who disagree and we try to come to some kind of accord? It's not about convincing the other person that you're right and they're wrong. It's about, like, you believe this. You're not a dumbass. I believe this. I'm not a dumbass. How about we like get together and try to figure out, okay, like how can we like have these different sets of beliefs? And instead of assuming that the other person is an idiot and convincing them that they're an idiot, how about we like get together and try to figure out like how we can both work together or how we can reconcile these views? Yeah, I think that sounds pretty ideal. I think one thing that really contributes and inhibits the ability to like have a conversation is that people have this desperate need to surround themselves with people that believe everything they do. So if there's a disagreement, it's like a personal thing that someone believes something that they don't. So I think that's why a lot of these conversations are steered towards me trying to get like a gotcha moment to try and convince you that I'm right and you're wrong because it's part of like my team. Yeah. So so and, and that's where um, give me just one second, Charlie. Sorry about that. All good. Um so th this, I, I completely agree with you because I think what's happened, it's like, it's become ego, right? It's like, I, I can't afford to be wrong. And this is where I, I think that like, honestly, I, I don't like, I mean, I'm going to get political for a second, but when I look at these like political interactions around gun control, the way that these questions are being asked about gun control is like, you will never get a conservative to admit that gun control is a problem now. Because if you get them, if you force them to say that, that means that they're going to be responsible for what happened and like kids dying. You're not, you have to give them an out. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. You, you can't say like they're the way that these questions are being asked. You're forcing them to double down on on their beliefs. There's no like, and this is why like I, I see this all the time in terms of you know like couples counseling with addictions, where when someone screws up, telling them I told you so, and forcing them to say I you know yeah, I really screwed up on such a catastrophic level and we've been screwing up on a catastrophic level for years and years and years and years and years. Like, it's going to get the opposite result. You're not, no one's ever going to budge because the only, like, if you, if you try to trap them in a corner by saying that, like, they, that comes with accepting responsibility for what happened. I don't know if people are willing to do that from an ego standpoint. And I do think that they're also, and I do think it's not a black and white issue. I mean, I'm in favor of gun control, but like, this is the kind of thing where there's like more to it than that, right? There are mental health issues. There are all kinds of other like radicalization issues. Like it's not, you know, there's a lot going on here. But the fact that everything gets so damn polarized is like the only way, like it becomes a contest. And the problem with a contest is that there's a winner and there's a loser. And there's no like cooperation. Like there's no collaboration. There's no like, there's just accusation after accusation. And it's in a sense, like I understand it because I, I think that those accusations are warranted in a lot of cases, but I don't think it's an effective way. Like it certainly doesn't work in couples counseling. When people fuck up, like, you know, calling them out on it over and over and over and over and over again is not how you patch things up. I think that makes sense. I mean, I, so I've always said arguing on Twitter or YouTube comments is the biggest waste of time in the world. And I think it just ties into the point of no one's ever actually going to budge on a belief. Uh, I think it, we're at a point where no one ever wants to say, like, I was wrong about something or no matter what you challenge them on or what you present, it's just falling on deaf ears. Even if it's like an objectively wrong stance, it's something they choose to believe in and will disregard everything else like Flat Earth. It's just... When you're arguing, I just find you to be wasting everyone's time, especially your own. If you're trying to have a conversation, I think there's merit to that. Like if you're just actively talking to a flat earther and just listening to them and maybe asking questions, I think you can maybe gain something from that. Whether it's productive or not, that's up for argument. But at the very least, it's better than trying to have a legitimate argument with someone because no one ever is going to budge on something they've chosen to believe in, even if it's wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I don't, I don't know where. So the, the, I think it com for me, it comes down to learning, right? So like, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about learning. And anytime you engage in an argument, the mind is not in a frame. It's not primed to learn. It's primed to convince. And then you have two people who are each trying to convince each other. And like sometimes people do learn from arguments. I, I don't think that you can't learn anything. But generally speaking, it's almost like when we work with like parents and kids who are, are addicted to video games, it becomes like a pissing contest where the parent is trying to get the kid to understand and the kid is trying to get the parent to understand. And when you're trying to get someone to understand, like it's not going to work well. Instead, what you should really do is try to understand their perspective. Like when, when we try to understand the person who disagrees with us, instead of trying to convince the person who disagrees with us, because if someone disagrees with us, like they've got to have a reason for believing it, right? And there's something out there. Like, and in, in this is where the other thing that happens is we tend to just insult the intelligence of people who disagree with us. And no, nowhere is that easier than with flat earthers. We're like, how could someone be so stupid? 
Whereas I don't believe that if you test 100 flat earthers, their IQ is going to be lower than average. I really don't believe that. I don't think it's about intelligence. But we assume what we tend to do is we make like personal attacks or we insult someone's intelligence or we call them, you know, subhuman or stupid or idiots or like how could someone be so stupid? And we also elevate our own IQ, right? Like I'm, I have an IQ of 160 as tested by this internet IQ test. And it, like once that, it, no one's trying to, it's just not going to get you anywhere. It's just waste of everyone's time. I think what really what politicians need to do is try to understand like why they believe what they believe. I think that just goes for everyone. I think just instead of trying to keep dunking, just having a conversation is more beneficial and you waste less time. I mean, I think so. That's why we, we do what we do. You know, we will take it, it. Some of my favorite streams have been with people who are like evil, but it turns out that they're not evil. Like we've had people on stream who like the internet doesn't like, but I, I think it's just, you know, there's, it's so easy to judge especially on Twitter, like all Twitter is capable of is judgment. And that's the really devastating thing is if you look at engagement online, the more righteous fury, the more pitchforks you can get out, the more views you're going to get. Who would you say is your most controversial guest you've had on here? Um, so I am not sure I'm comfortable answering that question. Oh, because I see. Sorry, I, I didn't no, that, phrase that's that I'm, I'm totally. I was just thinking through it for a second. And I, I mean, I think that I don't know that people would have a problem if I answer that question. But a rule of thumb that I try to follow is that I don't talk about about someone, even if they've been on stream. I break that okay, rule. Yeah. So, for example, I've talked about how much I appreciate your opinion on particular things. And if there's something going on, you know, sometimes I'll mention like general stuff. But generally speaking, I try my best not to reflect on conversations or at least name people i'm sure some people can put things together but it's just a you know I, okay yeah no that makes sense now yeah sorry no, no it's fine I, I i don't i'm i don't mind that you asked the question i was just thinking a little bit about how i felt about answering that mm -hmm. so no worries and actually you know i don't even know the other thing i'd sort of say is who's the most controversial guest i think you'd probably have to ask because i actually don't know about a lot of what goes on Mm -hmm. you know I, I i'm not really familiar with some of the twitch drama and things like that but i i think the other thing that that i'm kind of concerned about just in relation to that if i can just kind of go on a quick tangent so one of the things that i really struggle with maybe you can help me with this is exploring issues with people like trying to have these open conversations and at the same time not platforming someone who has views that upset a lot of people. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's a tough balancing act. I I think no matter what you do, when you talk to someone who has views that are, uh, like we'll, we'll say spicy, there's always going to be people that think that you are doing more harm than good by giving them a voice in front of people. I don't really think there's any way of convincing everyone that what you're doing is to try and understand or try and like talk about or challenge these things they're always going to be viewed by at least some people as platforming and thus giving a voice to someone that could potentially uh, convince someone else of bad stuff there's really not much you can do there at least it, it, maybe there is and i've just never seen it yet but 
from the nature of everything I've seen online, people are always just going to have that belief. So, Charlie, I, you know, I'd appreciate it if you ever figure that out. Let me know. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I would I would like to talk to people who. So we, we would like to talk to people who just have like different perspectives on things. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think especially with some of these like, you know, labels that we sort of really dislike. I'm not saying that those to be homophobic is good or anything like that. But I, I think that what what I really try to do is just help people or what I believe, I guess, is that like there's like good humans at the bottom of everyone for the most part. Even the people who have antisocial personality disorder like and are sociopaths like I, I've worked with a lot of them and they're like good in a weird way, good people like they don't have that internal moral compass but almost as a result like the morality the the code that they choose to live their life by is like developed through more effort whereas it's like kind of like instinctive for us um but i I mean i think there's a lot of stuff out there that I, i don't know how we're going to solve some of these problems unless we like really try to understand what some of these people believe yeah I think that makes sense. I do have a quick question kind yeah. of on the back of that. And you mentioned this earlier. You have talked to people that are labeled as racist or homophobic or something like that. But you've said like, you know, at the bottom of it, there's a good person there. Is that like in spite of being or holding racist and homophobic beliefs, they can still be a good person or I'm just trying to like understand exactly yeah, what so that means. Let's, uh, and I'm going to have to get going in about 10 minutes if that's cool with you. Um, totally fine. Yeah. Um, so what is a belief? Uh, I guess it would be a set of values that someone uh, lives their life by. Something that they will always uh, hold in their heart. That's what I would consider a belief. Okay, I, so- I will always believe uh, Santa Claus is real until proven otherwise. I don't think is a strong belief, but even still. It's something that I think a person will always... Or a person guides their life by yeah so i i I think i would i would i'm really happy with your answer and i think i would dispute parts of it because i think it touches on a lot of nuance the first is always so i don't Mm -hmm. think by nature of the definition a belief is not always right so like i can believe that my keys are in my pocket or i can believe in god and if I am a diehard religious person, that belief may not persist for the rest of my life. Now, we oftentimes think that way, right? Because that's how it is for most people. So I think your answer is like a good one. But if you really tunnel down into it, it's possible for people to find God if they were born an atheist, and it's possible for them to become an atheist if they were born religious. So the nature, first thing to understand is that the nature of beliefs is that they're actually changeable. That's what makes them beliefs. What isn't a belief is knowledge. So a belief is something that actually we don't know. <laughs> That's how I'd sort of define a belief okay, or a different sense. perspective. But I, I think the, the definition you offered, I think, is a much more practical one. But then the, so, so I think just beliefs are just like constructions in the mind, and they're actually a little bit divorced from reality by their nature, because that's the difference between belief and knowledge. So n- uh, knowledge is something that I can be secure in. A belief is something that I actually don't know. Right. So people will ask, do you believe in the afterlife? No one's saying. I'm sure that an afterlife exists. The best you can get is belief. That's because we have no data from the afterlife. That also is a little bit disputable. But anyway, 
um, conversation for a different day. There's one psychiatrist out of University of Virginia who actually does uh, has done a lot of interesting research on reincarnation and past lives and stuff like that. It's really fascinating. So he's published a lot of like scientific papers about it. Um, so uh, and, and that's where so I, I think what I've sort of learned is that a lot of times believes. So what I think makes a good person is their actions. And I think what makes a lot of our beliefs is our sensory exposures. So if I grow up in a homophobic household, I'm going to be homophobic. If I grow up in a particular political oriented household, I'm probably going to like follow those political beliefs. So that, that's where I think we hold people like accountable or even blame them for their beliefs. But if someone is sort of like, you know, homophobic, I oftentimes find that that's a problem of ignorance as opposed to anything else. And I think there's a there's a guy, I forget his name, he, he, he gave a really good TED talk. He's like a black dude who spent some time like with white supremacists or KKK members and just like got to know them. And even when I sort of deal with like a lot of racism, I think a lot of racism, for example, is born of ignorance. Like a lot of like homophobia is like born of ignorance. It's just you've never spent time like, you know, if you hang out with people who are of a different race and you have particular beliefs over time, you'll just naturally discover that these people are like normal. Or that gay people are normal. Lesbians are like most people are just humans. And it's sort of like an ignorance of that basic humanity that I think results in a lot of that stuff. And so in my experience, people who hold bad beliefs, sometimes they're sort of chosen or people kind of give in to them. But I, I'd like to say that, you know, upwards of 50% of them, it's like really due to ignorance. And then in those people, uh, if it was due to ignorance, do you like uh, try and steer them towards maybe changing those beliefs or do you still consider them good people even with those beliefs if they continue them or where does, what does that look like? I usually try not to steer people. Mm -hmm. So that's because, you know, how do I know that I'm not the ignorant one? Right. Okay, maybe, fair. maybe all the homophobes are right. Maybe one race is worse than not. like, who know? Like, you know, I don't believe that I'm pretty confident in that by the way, but Generally speaking, my experience has been that you don't need to steer people if they have incorrect beliefs. All you have to do is ask them to explain. Okay. Right. So and, and that's where like so, you know, you know, so I was talking to someone a couple months ago about COVID and they're like, yeah, the reason I didn't get COVID is because I have a strong mind. And the reason that people are dying of COVID is because they have weak minds. You know, and, and that's where it's like, I don't really believe that at all. But so then I ask him to explain it because who knows? And then what I tend to find is that if you ask, um, if you ask, you know, like a flat earther to explain things and like really explain them, what you'll find is that their like explanations are like inconsistent. They're internally inconsistent. And that if someone, you know, really has a very solid like understanding of things, they, they should be able to explain it well. And that oftentimes, the more that you ask questions and seek to learn, like if people have incorrect beliefs, so this is what we do sort of in, there's a technique called motivational interviewing that we do in addiction psychiatry, where oftentimes people are in denial that the substance is a problem, right? Oh, it's not like, it's not the alcohol that's a problem. It's that cops are racist. And every time I drive while I'm drunk and I get a DUI, it's like a consequence of racism. You know, like they'll, they'll cite all kinds of different things. And so you just ask them questions. And the more that someone is in denial, like the right move is asking open-ended questions. And what we've learned from numerous scientific studies on denial around alcoholism 
is just asking people open-ended, non-judgmental questions actually gets them to like recognize that they have a problem. It's kind of bizarre. Right. Oh, yeah. So I, I see what you're saying. So alcohol is like not the problem at all. Like there are bigger problems in your life. So it, it must be, you know, alcohol doesn't cause any problems whatsoever. They're, well, like sometimes I'm hungover. But yeah, but what's the problem with being hungover? Like what's the big deal with that? You know, like who cares about being hungover? It's like it's not alcohol that's call, causing the hangover. And the person is like, wait, no, no, alcohol's causing the hangover. Yeah, but you like hangovers. No, I mean, who the hell likes a hangover? Wait, I'm confused. You said that alcohol doesn't cause any problems and you don't like hangovers. Does that mean that you don't like being hungover? No, I don't like being hungover. Oh, so like, what can you do about that? Well, I could drink a little bit less, dumbass. Oh, I see. So maybe you should drink a little bit less. Yeah. And then you kind of like Uno reverse them into recognizing that they have a problem. A little inception play. It's it's called motivational interviewing. So and, and that's where this it's just asking people, you know, questions. I don't okay. know if that makes sense, but yeah. So I, I try not I, to I steer it. them usually, but at yeah, the same you let them arrive at their own conclusions because that's I think how people are going to change, right? It's the very opposite of a debate. I, it's not my place to convince you, but like I'm happy to learn about your beliefs. And usually, what tends to happen is when you create that kind of atmosphere where someone doesn't have to defend against your attacks, then like they're going to be more open-minded. And then if I have an opinion, I'll share it with them. At some point, I'll say, hey, like, I really think you should consider cutting back on the alcohol or even maybe taking a break from it. Here are the reasons why. Number one, you won't be hungover anymore. Number two, it sounds like if you get one more DUI, you're going to lose your license. And it sounds like you've got an awesome career, but you need to be able to drive. And number three is it sounds like two people have now broken up with you because of your drinking. And they may not have been, I'm not saying they were the right people for you. I'm not saying that like, you know, you're never going to be happy in a relationship unless you stop drinking. But here are the three things that I've heard from you. What do you think about that? And then it just lets them go to the, a, a better conclusion. Yeah. Or just gets, it's not really even about the conclusion, Charlie. It's about getting them to question, right? So it's, I'm genuinely mm. asking, what do you think about that? Like I've stated my beliefs at that point. And I'm like, this is what I think, man. Like, you tell me, like, what do you think? And they're like, well, like, you know, I think there's a part of it that's fair and a part of it that isn't. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, what's fair about it and what isn't? And so you kind of just keep talking to them and conversation. And then I think most humans will come to the quote unquote right conclusions. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. Um, I've got to actually do, we actually have a sponsored stream and, and there's a, a company that's been kind enough to offer coaching to our community. So I got to bounce over to that, but yeah, I just no really wanted to thank you for coming on today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on, man. Um, I, I really appreciated the conversation. I like talking to you a lot. So. Oh, likewise. I always appreciate it. Um, yes. People are wondering if it's, if it's steak. Yeah, we have a, we have a, no, it's not steak. Yeah, that would be such a big power play if it was. Though we spent the whole first minute just talking about steak and how, kind of shit awesome on it a little is, bit. No, yeah. Um, but any any kind of closing thoughts from your end before we wrap up? Um, not really. Talking about like uh, some really depressing stuff is usually not something I do. But talking to a professional like you about it's always kind of interesting and eye opening. So I just always appreciate the conversation. Likewise, and and um. As a professional, I, I think that, you know, we learn a lot 
and we do have a lot of expertise, but I'm convinced that, you know, like the, the best answers or a lot of the, the solutions to this problem are not necessarily going to come from professionals. So even if you look at things like Alcoholics Anonymous, which has helped, you know, way more people become sober, I think, than therapists have by statistically. So I, I think that part of what I really appreciate is just, you know, if you have ideas or other people in the community have ideas or people are listening and have ideas like that could help. Um, yeah. So appreciate it, man. Take yeah, no, care. Thank you. Adios. Hey, bye everyone. <laughs>